I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to the 83rd episode of Talking Golf History, and a new episode of Golf from the Fringe. For those listeners who haven't been with the show over the past four seasons, our Golf from the Fringe episodes represent golf stories you likely aren't going to hear anywhere else. They are stories that are often lost or overlooked, that I believe are remarkable. They are also stories that I feel need to be told in the narrative form. I am aware that some of you may find today's story unpleasant, but golf history isn't always something we need to celebrate. The story you're about to hear was researched, written, and narrated by Connor T. Lewis, and the Society of Golf Historians. The PGA's Caucasian Clause Some anniversaries in golf are worth celebrating. In 1870, young Tom Morris changed the game of golf when he claimed his third Open in a row. And as a result, we were rewarded with the first Open Rota and a new trophy, the Claret Jug. In 1930, Bobby Jones completed the impregnable quadrilateral, golf's original grand slam, setting the tone for golfing excellence and providing inspiration for what would ultimately become the professional grand slam. In 1953, Ben Hogan claimed the triple crown, which until that point may have been considered the single greatest golf year for a professional golfer. And in 2000 and 2001, Tiger Woods held all four professional majors at the same time, a feat that is yet to be matched. Unfortunately, our story today is not one of those anniversaries. This is the type of story we keep locked away. We hide it in golf's dusty attic because we are rightfully ashamed of it. We know that we have done things wrong in the past, and we try as we can to learn from those mistakes. 60 years have passed, and today, it's time to tell the story that helped reshape the PGA of America and the PGA Tour. This is a story that will recognize our golf pioneers and the true heroes who played a pivotal role, some of which behind the scenes to reshape the PGA. This is the tale of the 1962 PGA Championship and how 60 years ago, the PGA chose to hold on to a racist clause, known as the Caucasian-only clause, and did so to protect a major championship. This anniversary represents a line in the sand that they should have crossed, but instead, the PGA forged forward, only bending to the will of progress when the resistance seemed too much to overcome. This is a fascinating story of both discrimination 
in the eventual evolution of an organization that has made great strides in the decades that have passed to both grow the game and promote equality across the game of golf. The history of race and golf in America includes stories of amazing breakthroughs and horrible setbacks. Our story today begins 66 years prior to the 1962 PGA Championship. The setting, Shinnecock Hills, just prior to the second ever U.S. Open. You can't tell the story of American golf without telling the story of the 1896 U.S. Open at Shinnecock Hills. It should have been our proudest moment. It should have set the precedent for equality throughout the game of golf in America. But even this story of equality has a rocky beginning. The second ever U.S. Open broke racial barriers and we owe a debt of gratitude to the progressive membership at Shinnecock Hills and the president of the USGA, Theodore Havemeyer, the one the U.S. Amateur Trophy is named after. The members of Shinnecock Hills were so impressed with the talents of two of their young caddies that they entered them both in the 1896 U.S. Open. The caddies were 16-year-old John Shippen, who is black, and 21-year-old Oscar Bunn, who is a Shinnecock Indian. Their entries did not go unnoticed by the white professionals of Scottish and English descent, and some of those men, who claimed to be gentlemen, threatened to boycott. USGA President Theodore Havemeyer not only stuck by the two players, he was so bold to say, the U.S. Open would only proceed if both Dunn and Shippen were in the field. And if they were the only players in the field, so be it. From Havemeyer's decree, on July 18, 1896, the U.S. Open was played with the first ever Native American and first black golfer in the field. While Oscar Bunn struggled, John Shippen thrived under the spotlight, carding a 78 in the first round, which put him only two strokes off the lead. Shippen made a valiant charge in the second round and was in position to claim the 1896 U.S. Open when his ball found a sandy road trap on the 13th hole. Now keep in mind, this was nearly 40 years before Gene Sarazen would popularize the use of bounce on wedges and an era where the sand rake did not exist. Two pre-existing conditions which created a fatal hole for John Shippen's hope to win the U.S. Open. Shippen would end up carding an 11 on the par 4, which Shippen, in his own words recalled, was an easy par 4. It turned out, carding that 11 on that hole, a hole that he routinely carded a 4 on, turned out to be the difference between 5th place where Shippen finished and the winning score recorded by James Fallis. Shippen's 1896 U.S. Open is fairly well known to golfers who follow the game and its history. What is reported less, Shippen kept playing in U.S. Opens, competing in a total of five U.S. Opens. In 1896 at Shinnecock, he finished fifth place. In 1899 at Baltimore Country Club, he came in 25th place. In 1900 at Chicago Golf Club with Varden in the field, Shippen finished 27th. In 1902, at Garden City Golf Club, he finished 5th place. 
and in 1913, at the Country Club, the most pivotal U.S. Open, perhaps in U.S. Open history, Francis we met beating Harry Varden and Ted Ray. John Shippen was there and finished in 41st place. John Shippen's story will be told in more depth in a future podcast. But let me leave you with this. John Shippen was, in fact, the first ever American-born golf professional in the United States of America. He started working as an assistant pro, working under the tutelage of Willie Dunn, giving lessons to Shinnecock members in 1896, before going on his own to become the head professional at the Maidstone Club, and then Aronomic, and finally ending his career at Shady Rest Golf Course, known today as Scotch Hills Country Club, which was the first black golf club in America. Moreover, there are several articles from the late 1890s which claim that John Shippen was, in fact, the best golfer in the United States. From 1896 to 1913, John Shippen played in the U.S. Open. Three years after Shippen's last U.S. Open appearance, the PGA of America was formed with the help of Rodman Wanamaker. And while there was no clause in place, the unwritten rule of the land seemed to be that the sport should be as white as the golf ball. A decade of no progress on the professional level to promote black golfers to the professional ranks led a gentleman by the name of Robert Hawkins to stage the first golf tournament in 1926 expressly for black golfers. And within two years of the inaugural tournament in 1928, Hawkins created the United Golf Association, also known as the UGA. The UGA became the governing body of the black golfer, hosting both amateur and professional events and majors, including its own National Negro Open. The UGA was golf's version of baseball's Negro Leagues, and much like their baseball counterparts, the UGA was soon stacked with talent. The year 1928 stands out as a breakthrough year for the black golfers staking their claim in the USA, but it also came with a tremendous setback. With what must have felt like a tailwind of support, two black golfers, Wilmer Stout and Robert Ball, registered to play in the USGA's National Public Links Championship, which was to be held at the famed public golf course across the street from Marion, Cobbs Creek. Robert Ball was a crack golfer who caddied for Bobby Jones and who would go on to win four National Negro Opens, a feat only accomplished by four golfers in history. The championship, much like the 1896 U.S. Open, started with white golfers protesting these two black players in the championship. Some insisting that they would withdraw if paired with either man. In the end, nobody withdrew, but in hindsight, it would have been a better outcome. What followed was a stain upon the game, perhaps as egregious and underreported as any story of discrimination in sports. If you don't believe me, pause the podcast and Google search the 1928 National Public Links Championship and Robert Ball. If you find something, let me know, because I can't find it anywhere. And the story I share with you today 
was rediscovered accidentally in researching the show. Rather than withdraw, it appears the white golfers playing in the 1928 National Public Links Championship conspired against Wilmer Stout and Robert Ball. After concluding their first matches, both golfers were mysteriously disqualified under allegations of cheating. But wait, the story doesn't end there. The story of the unfair treatment of Stout and Ball found the ears of John Lee, who was both an attorney and the president of the Fairview Golf Club, which was described at the time as, I quote, a local Negro golf club that plays at Cobbs Creek, unquote. John Lee took on the mistreatment of Ball and Stout and took their expedited case to court and won. Ball and Stout were found innocent of cheating, and they had won the right to demand the restart of the championship. But out of unbridled love for the game, both Ball and Stout thought it was unfair to restart the championship and declined to return to the National Public Links Championship. Take a moment to let that soak in. They were cleared and were unlawfully discriminated against. Their names were drugged through the mud loudly and publicly, and yet their love for the game and its rules prevented them from rightfully teeing it up against their former accusers. Judge McNeil, for reasons unknown to this golf historian, exonerated the USGA for any wrongdoing or prejudice. I share these stories to set the tone for the story that will follow. The game of golf in America certainly had its racist detractors, but it was also showing a glimpse of hope. With every achievement, a setback, but with every setback, a renewed sense of purpose and poise from those golfers trying to make the game of golf a game for everyone. In 1934, the PGA of America made a historical and egregious error under the reign of PGA President George Jacobus of New Jersey, who just a year prior became the first American-born PGA president. In 1934, under the helm of Jacobus, the PGA of America passed what would soon be known as the Caucasian Clause. This clause was designed to discriminate against all golfers of non-Caucasian race, as well as those professional golfers who did not reside in North or South America. Effectively, the PGA of America created the only racist rule in all of sports history. Other sports surely discriminated, but the PGA of America chose not to hide their racism. In 1934, they passed a clause that would essentially haunt them forever. Fourteen years after the passing of the Caucasian Clause, a generational golfer by the name of Ted Rhodes, winner of 150 golf tournaments and four-time winner of the National Negro Open, qualified to play in the 1948 U.S. Open, becoming the second African-American after John Shippen to do so. Rhodes carded a 70 in his first round at Riviera Country Club in Los Angeles, putting him solidly in fifth place and only three strokes behind the leaders, Lou Warsham and Ben Hogan. Rhodes' great play in round one, however, did not last. He made the cut and finished the tournament in 51st place. 
Unfortunately, the common thread of our story continued. For every great achievement by the black golfer, there seemed to be a major setback. Such was the case later in 1948. No doubt inspired by the hope from the 1948 U.S. Open, Rhodes and his fellow professional golfer Bill Spiller attempted to enter the Richmond Open in California, only to be told that they needed to be PGA members to compete. Of course, due to the color of their skin, they were prohibited from becoming members. So Rhodes and Spiller hired lawyer Jonathan Rowell to file a lawsuit claiming the PGA of America was an illegal organization that barred black golfers from earning a living. Furthermore, they were seeking the removal of the PGA's Caucasian-only clause. Enter PGA president and two-time Masters winner Horton Smith. President Horton Smith likely recognized that the PGA's chances of winning in court were slim to none. Smith convinced Spiller and Rhodes to drop their lawsuit by promising the end of discrimination. However, Horton Smith acted in bad faith when he turned around and encouraged tournament sponsors to rename their tournaments. The PGA tournaments that followed dropped the designation of open tournaments and renamed them invitationals, and in the process created a new path to discriminate against the non-Caucasian golfer. Once again, the black golfers were locked out. In 1952, the color barrier on the PGA was finally broken. But one seemingly giant leap was met with another massive and embarrassing defeat. On January 7, 1952, former heavyweight champion boxer Joe Lewis played in the 1952 San Diego Open. And while Joe Lewis officially became the first black golfer to play in a sanctioned PGA Tour event, he did so under the distinction of an invited amateur, while professional Bill Spiller sat outside the gates in protest, denied yet another opportunity because the color of his skin. Spiller, dejected and rejected, soon after the events of the 1952 San Diego Open, decided to hang up his playing spikes. He had fought and he had fought hard to break the color lines, and time after time he was pushed away, locked out, and humiliated. Bill Spiller found himself working as a caddy at Hillcrest Country Club in California when in July of 1960, the PGA of America announced that Brentwood Country Club in Los Angeles would host the 1962 PGA Championship. It was destined to be the PGA Championship's triumphant return to the state of California, which had previously hosted the championship in 1929 at the very club Spiller was looping at. Little did Spiller know that his position as a caddy would soon start a tidal wave that would change our game forever. Through his many loops at Hillcrest, Spiller befriended a rider by the name of Harry Braverman, and amongst their many loops around the course at Hillcrest, Braverman was taken in by the trials and tribulations of his caddy and former professional golfer, Bill Spiller. It was through this relationship that Braverman connected Spiller with his friend and fellow Hillcrest member, Stanley Mosk, who had just a year prior had been named the California State Attorney General. Bill Spiller teamed up with the hottest golf talent on the UGA Tour, Charlie Sifford, who had won five straight National Negro Opens 
and six overall and played golf at the Progressive Hillcrest Country Club. Together, they worked with one of the most powerful lawyers in the state of California to make a change once and for all. Stanley Mosk wasted no time. He issued a public statement against the actions of the PGA of America. And I quote, We intend to take every step available to us, both in and out of the courts, to force the PGA either to eliminate this obnoxious restriction or to cease all activity of any kind within our state. Unquote. Let us be clear, this declaration wasn't just to cease the PGA Championship. It was to cease all golf tournaments in the state of California. The PGA of America, by 1961, had a racist bylaw on their books for 27 years. This surely would have been a great opportunity to admit that it was time to make a change but they didn't. Rather than admit defeat and strike down the only racist bylaw in professional sports history, the PGA of America doubled down. Shortly after Mosk's strong statement against the practices of the PGA of America, and more specifically the Caucasian Clause, the PGA announced in May 1961 that it was pulling the PGA Championship from Brentwood Country Club and was moving it to Aronimic Country Club in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The announcement, coincidentally, fell on the 100-year anniversary of the start of the Civil War. It appears history is not immune to irony. Perhaps the PGA of America thought this move would quiet down the groundswell, but if anything, a battle with one state became a battle with many. Stanley Mosk, Bill Spiller and Charlie Sifford were not going to allow the legal process to fail them this time around. Instead, Stanley Moss started calling every state attorney general in the United States to get them to stand by his side, and he wasn't alone, with former heavyweight champion Joe Lewis and the man who broke Major League Baseball's color barrier, Jackie Robinson, making phone calls to move public opinion. The history books may only tell you the story of the PGA of America repealing the Caucasian Clause on September 11, 1961. But it took the long arm of Stanley Mosk to push them into a corner where there could be only one choice, repeal and repent. Before the end of 1961, Charlie Sifford became the first black golfer on the PGA Tour, more than 65 years after John Shippen made his U.S. Open debut. The 1962 PGA Championship would be held at Aronimic, and it was won by South African golfer Gary Player, who was also aided by the abolishment of the Caucasian Clause, as it also prevented golfers from outside North and South America from joining the PGA Tour. It would take another three years for Charlie Sifford to become the first black golfer to play in the PGA Championship and finally complete the story that effectively began in 1896. Charlie Sifford would go on to win 22 times in his career, twice on the PGA Tour, and in 1975, he would claim the PGA Senior Championship. In 2004, he was elected into the World Golf Hall of Fame. In 2007, he was awarded the Old Tom Morris Award for his lifetime commitment to the game of golf. And in 2014, he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He passed away on February 3rd, 2015, 
at the age of 92. If not for the brave efforts of Bill Spiller and Charlie Sifford, who knows where our game would be today? As for the lawyer who fought on their behalf, Stanley Mosk may be the forgotten golfer in this story, but his legacy is not forgotten in the state of California. Three years after the events of our story, Stanley Mosk was appointed to the Supreme Court of California and became the longest-serving justice in California Supreme Court history. Today, the Stanley Mosk Courthouse is home of the Los Angeles County Superior Court. Stanley Mosk passed away in 2001, and upon hearing of his passing, Charlie Sifford said of Mosk, and I quote, All African-American golfers should be thankful for him, because without him, we might not be playing golf. What he did should never be forgotten, and won't be forgotten by me. End quote. In 1969, the PGA of America and the PGA Tour split up into two different organizations. As a result of the split, the PGA of America is charged with the elevation of the standards of the golf professional and to grow the interests and participation in the game. In 2014, the PGA of America added diversity and inclusion to their founding principle of their long-term strategic plan including education and skills development, workforce diversification, vendor inclusion, including minority, women, disabled, LBGTQ, and veteran-owned businesses, and finally, engaging with communities. The PGA Tour has joined these efforts, and in August of 2021, the PGA Tour pledged $100 million to support racial equity and inclusion in golf. In the past 60 years, we have seen progress. Progress that is only made possible by the men and women of color who fought for their right to play the game of golf with their peers. I would like to give a special thanks to all the men and women who fought hard to get us to where we are today, and an extended thanks to those of you who are fighting for a better tomorrow. Until next time, yours in golf history. This is Connor T. Lewis.